a lot of times the answer is give estradiol because you're suppressing it too much and you're not making enough. So you really give a little bit of estradiol back. You don't give any progesterone, just estradiol, and you can change the whole paradigm. In fact, it affects women so well, they're now showing that you can give it back to women who have bipolar 2 disease and it can help. You can give it to women who have postpartum depression and it can help. Welcome back to the Energized with Dr. Marisa podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marisa, and I'm here to help you rock your hormones, optimize your metabolic health, and feel energized in your body so that you can age powerfully and wake up feeling amazing in your body for many years to come. Let's jump on in. Hey, one more thing. Did you know that one of the biggest nutrient deficiencies that I see in people, especially women, is a magnesium deficiency? It's because we burn through the super mineral so quickly. Now, this powerful mineral packs a massive punch because magnesium is involved in over 600 reactions in the body. Now, it is your best friend if you need more energy, better sleep, a faster metabolism, improved digestion, and not to mention happier periods. And you can quickly replenish your magnesium levels with my Essentially Whole Magnesium Restore Supplement made with my favorite form of magnesium, magnesium glycinate. Use promo code PODCAST and get 10% off your entire order at drmarisa.com slash magnesium. Now I'll have the link in the show notes for this episode to make it easy. Go and try it out today. There's a big question that I've been asking myself recently now that I am smack dab in the middle of perimenopause, and I can feel that my critical reproductive hormones are shifting and slowly declining. I also know this due to lab results and the changes in my menstrual cycle. And this question is really the reason why I asked Dr. Felice Gersh back to the show, because she is a pioneer in women's hormone health, especially when it comes to supplementing and replacing hormones as we get older. So here's my question. Why are doctors and healthcare professionals recommending that we basically wait to give hormone therapy to women once they are in menopause? Why are we waiting until our reproductive hormones are at ground zero to finally prescribe hormone replacement? If that same woman had suboptimal thyroid function, we would never wait until she had zero T3 and T4 before we administered thyroid medication. And we would also not limit the amount we gave her. We would give her enough to get her TSH and her T3 and her T4 into optimal range so that she was functioning properly. So the question I'm wondering is why are we skimping on hormones like estradiol, testosterone, and progesterone when they are as critical as something like thyroid hormone? And I can speak from personal experience, someone who has had suboptimal thyroid hormone, and my medication is changed and adjusted based on my quarterly thyroid levels, right? We're trying to get me into optimal range, not just give me just enough to kind of top me off. That's not the way that type of standard of care is given when it comes to thyroid health. If we know that women start to experience a decline in perimenopause, and women begin to experience significant side effects and even chronic disease risk due to the decline of these hormones, wouldn't it make sense to supplement women in perimenopause with at least enough estradiol and progesterone to reduce risk and increase health span? I believe that women in perimenopause deserve to be supported with proper hormone supplementation along with 
lifestyle factors like nutrition, self-care, sleep support, stress management, movement, and supplementation. Now, what I know for sure is that the average primary care physician or OBGYN has really no education, especially not medical school education on any of these lifestyle factors. And they get very little, if any, type of education around hormone replacement therapy. If anything, most of them are scared to even broach the subject. And here's something I know every woman can agree on. Stubborn belly fat can feel like the worst especially when you've tried everything to lose it. Not to mention, belly fat can be dangerous for us too. According to a brand new study, women over 40 who have excessive belly fat are up to 20% more likely to suffer a heart attack. And no surprise, hormones are involved in belly fat production, which is actually good news because we can optimize your hormones and metabolism for a flatter stomach. And that's exactly what I'm offering to you as a free gift today. My Belly Slim Down Guide gives you three effective strategies to get rid of belly fat, along with recipes to reduce bloating, balance your blood sugar, and speed up your metabolic furnace to optimize fat burning. So grab the Belly Slim Down Guide with my proven protocols and recommendations and recipes now at drmarisa.com slash slimdown. That's drmarisa.com slash slimdown, and the link will be in the show notes. Here's the thing, we really need to be addressing the often dismissed hormone-driven symptoms that women are experiencing in perimenopause, like hot flashes, night sweats, sleep issues, depression, mood swings, rage, belly fat, weight gain, brittle hair and nails, osteopenia, tender painful breasts, dry itchy skin, panic attacks, migraines, headaches, brain fog, dizziness, constipation, dry eyes, palpitations, increase blood sugar, blood pressure, triglycerides, and cholesterol. Yes, all of those symptoms, and those are the result of declining hormones in perimenopause, along with lifestyle factors. It can feel beyond discouraging when you feel like you don't have a real viable solution to addressing most of these issues. Even worse, you go to your doctor and you're literally gaslit about the symptoms that you're having told that they are completely normal or they're just due to aging. Most doctors will often offer birth control pills, an IUD, and mood-altering drugs like an anti-anxiety prescription, but we all know that these solutions don't address most of the root cause issues driving these symptoms that I mentioned earlier, right? This is due to declining reproductive hormones and the turning off of so many different systems because we have entered in that second puberty. Why isn't hormone supplementation on the table for discussion? But antidepressant medication and birth control are. We are not addressing the root cause elephant in the room when these hormones matter. I mean, they matter. For the past five years, I have looked at the research and although I believe we need to lean heavily on natural solutions like nutrition, supplementation, and lifestyle tools for optimal metabolic health and longevity, I know that we deserve every tool in the toolbox to increase our health span, and that includes natural progesterone and estradiol. What I know to be true is that progesterone and estrogen are powerful chemical messengers in the body, more than we realize. They impact our metabolism, our brain function, our microbiome, our energy levels, our mood, our emotional well-being, our longevity, our brain, our bones, I mean, name it, our cardiovascular system. It is a long list. 
these hormones are impacting every system of our body. And when we start to lose those, we start to lose our resilience. It almost doesn't make sense that we would lose these critical hormones at such a young age, right? Around our mid 40s for progesterone and estrogen in our late 40s, maybe mid to late 40s, depending on the woman. And I get that they are primary drivers for reproduction and that reproduction is designed to wind down. But what about everything else that we have on this list? What about our heart and our bones and our brain? I think those are equally as important. And because I want to dive deep into this conversation about what to do with our lacking hormones as we approach our 40s and beyond, I invited Dr. Felice Gersh to really talk about the benefit of extending bioidentical hormones in patients for many years during perimenopause and at the start of menopause. If you have been on the fence about what to do regarding hormone therapy or hormone supplementation, today's conversation is for you. And before I bring on Dr. Gersh, let me sing her praises. Dr. Felice Gersh is an award-winning physician with dual board certifications in OBGYN and integrative medicine. She's the founder and director of the Integrative Medicine Group of Irvine, a comprehensive women's health practice where she is in practice six days a week, give or take. Felice is a best-selling author of PCOS SOS series and has published several articles in peer-reviewed medical journals. Look for her latest book, Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know, which is available on Amazon today. Let's welcome Dr. Felice Gersh to the show. Welcome back to the Energized Podcast, Dr. Gersh. It is such a pleasure for you to be here today. And thank you for coming on on your beautiful Saturday morning. (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to. And this is actually one of the highlights of my day. So no problem whatsoever. Well, I am so grateful to have you. And what I, I, you know, we are one of my go-to experts when it comes to, you know, helping women navigate perimenopause and menopause by, you know, not only with ease and grace, but also by helping to ensure that they have an amazing health span. As you and I both know, this is half of our life and probably the most important and a part, we have families at this point, we, we're in communities, we, we're in our careers. I find this to be one of the most important um, aspects of our life. And yet I feel like so many women are uneducated about how to tend to their body and most importantly, how to tend to their mental health as they, as they navigate these big hormone shifts. So I would love to dive into kind of that question around perimenopause. And just the first question I want to ask you is, are you a fan or is it something that you recommend around perimenopause to start women on bioidentical hormones or some type of hormone support if indeed it's called for? Well, it is now, but it wasn't always because it is not the conventional medical approach to start hormones at all especially when a woman is still having periods. So there's an arbitrary definition of menopause, as many have heard. It's 12 consecutive months without any bleeding. And I can't even say a period, because who knows what that bleeding is. If you go three, four months and you don't bleed, you probably are having dysfunctional uterine bleeding, which is not related to ovulation. It's just some estrogen that made the uterine lining get too big, and then it literally started falling out, and that's bleeding. So that's an arbitrary definition, and it's not based on health. It's just based on, well, probably by that point, a woman is not going to be fertile, so she doesn't have to worry about birth control. It's all based on other kinds of issues, certainly not mental health. But once you recognize that it's a transitional type of a situation, we're dealing with ovarian aging or 
ovarian senescence. It's just the decline of ovarian health, loss of eggs, loss of healthy, optimal functioning of the ovaries and the eggs. And therefore, we have changes in hormonal production, which have huge effects, huge ramifications all over the body. And this process is occurring, of course, throughout the woman's life. That's why it parallels fertility. That's why fertility is much higher in the early 20s than even into the 30s and late 30s. It's really declining. And in the 40s, it it plummets, but not all the way. But usually once you get over 45, it's generally not present, even for women who are having regular cycles. So there's a parallel there and hormones are changing and it's affecting the body. Now that we understand that this is a process, it's not like crossing the finish line. All of this needs to be considered in terms of our therapeutic approach. So during the perimenopause, when hormones are declining and fluctuating and creating a lot of havoc, loss of bone, change in mood and cognition and sleep quality, loss of collagen and a lot of other things in the skin, insulin resistance, gut health, like every organ system is impacted. So now I very routinely give women what I call, and I have to create my own vocabulary because it doesn't even exist. During the perimenopause, I just call it very simply hormone supplementation. And during menopause, when there's no longer ovarian function in terms of producing estradiol, the estrogen that the ovaries produce and the progesterone, then I call it hormone replacement therapy, which by the way, that expression has now been shunned by the conventional medical world and they replaced it with menopausal hormone therapy. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but it's not really giving what I am trying to give, which is truly hormone replacement. I'm not just trying to give a little bit on the top just to kind of ameliorate some of the symptoms. I'm really trying to go for what you said, health span. We want to have a healthy longevity, not just be alive. So I'm going to give hormones to try to optimize health for every organ system, not just suppress one or two symptoms. I really appreciate you saying that because that is exactly the trend that I've seen across the board in conventional medicine is they'll give women a little bit and and then they kind of have a cap. And they're like, you know, even if your symptoms aren't gone, I won't go beyond that cap because that could drive breast cancer or that could drive whatever scary thing that they're concerned with. But we would never do that to women with a thyroid hormone. Like until we can get your levels back to where they need to be, an optimal like a TSH of a 1.5 to 2, we will keep raising up that hormone dosage until we get there. But that's not the case for estradiol patch or some type of bioidentical hormone. And so I love that your approach is like, no, I'm trying to get women back to, you know, where it's going to have an impact on their health span and actually carry them through the next decades of their life to improve their bone health, their cardiovascular health, their cognitive health, which is what we all deserve. And your analogy with thyroid is really perfect because that's another hormone. It's part of the endocrine system. And no one would ever say, well, your thyroid is low, it's suboptimal, but let's wait until it's zero before we even consider giving you any thyroid hormone. So unless you have no thyroid gland, which does happen when people have their thyroid gland removed, say for thyroid cancer, then it's truly thyroid replacement. But for the vast majority of women, women make up the bulk, although not all the the people on 
thyroid hormone as a need for health. We call it thyroid supplementation. We're not replacing all the thyroid hormone because you still have some, you're just augmenting it. And that's the perimenopause. You do have hormones, but it's not optimal. And when we're doing integrative and functional medicine, yeah, I know it's hard and impossible actually to achieve, but we're striving for optimal, not just passable. I agree. I know I would love to gear into menopause as well, but as you had mentioned, supplementation, hormone supplementation. I love that during perimenopause because, you know, what a lot of women don't realize is that there, there is a decline happening and probably sooner than they think is happening. And that is driving a lot of those symptoms that they're experiencing. And, and a cluster of symptoms that I, you and I talked about before we got on was the, the cluster of symptoms around mental health. We know that women are, you know, we see the, a greater amount of mood disorders in perimenopause, more than childbearing years and even postmenopause. Like in this particular 10-year transition, give or take, that's where things can get pretty dicey. And women experience more depression, more anxiety, more rage, more irritability. You know, it's one of the most common symptoms is women are just over it, you know, and, and a lot of us are like, well, maybe this is just shedding of my accommodation. Like I'm just not accommodating to people anymore. Like I'm really in my true essence, but no, we know that, that, that these hormones as they decline are having a profound impact on neurotransmitters. And if neurotransmitters were potentially already low, we can see an exacerbation of those symptoms. And so I'd love to know, can, what have you seen in your practice as women are navigating this transition? I know I have, I just had an episode go out talking about my own lived experience and it is, I feel like my body's possessed about three to five days leading up to my period. And I have intense rage and intense anger and, and life feels insurmountable to me. Like two days ago, life was, I could handle life. I handle every, I'm the CEO of all parts of my life. And then, and then two days later, all of a sudden it's like, I am, I have this deep sense of dread that I feel like just is a, is a, a big tidal wave that comes over me. And even on 200 milligrams of Prometrium, I can't seem to get it under control. Well, you first of all said something really key, and that is that estradiol is really key to neurotransmitter production, function, everything, the receptor is working. So if we look at some of the neurotransmitters that are affected, we're talking about dopamine. We're talking about serotonin from which comes melatonin. We're talking about oxytocin, the bonding love, what you can call either a hormone or a transmitter, it's kind of both. And acetylcholine, which is about creating memories. And more than that, in the brain, it's about memory creation, but in the peripheral system with the autonomic nervous system, it is the neurotransmitter of the parasympathetic nervous system, or what we call the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve, in order to keep everything sort of in a just a calm, normal state, it needs acetylcholine. That's its neurotransmitter. And that's why there's so much push for what we call vagus nerve stimulation. And a lot of the mind-body medicine is all about increasing vagal tone. That's like the expression we use 
And that creates a host of really beneficial effects throughout the body, but it really keeps you calm and happy, not in road rage with or without the road. So all of these are really critical neurotransmitters that are impacted in every way in terms of how they're produced, how they're transmitted, how the receptor is working. And just like those supposed, I'm not, we're not even sure this is how they work, drugs that are called SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Well, it turns out that estradiol is exactly that. It is an SSRI. It is. It actually keeps serotonin longer in the synapse by reducing reuptake. It actually worked, among other ways, that it worked to improve the health of the so-called serotonin neurons, the ones that produce serotonin. So when you're having fluctuations and reduced production of estradiol, you're going to impact on every aspect of mental health. Now, you mentioned during the menstrual cycle, during the luteal phase. Yeah, the late luteal phase is where I'm losing my stuff. So this is important to understand the incredible dynamics of the hormones and their effects in the brain during the menstrual cycle. So estradiol starts out really low during the part where you're bleeding, the shedding phase. Now, it needs to be low at that time because you're shedding the lining. You're not trying to grow the lining. Right, because that's what estrogen does. It grows the lining. We want to get rid of the lining. Yes. (laughs) Now, part of the amazing aspects of estradiol is its pro-growth or proliferation. It creates and stimulates the growth factors. Now, in the brain, it increases like brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which improves cognition and mood. So it does all that in the uterus, the growth factors create growth of the uterine lining called the endometrium. So at the time when you're having your period, estradiol is at its lowest, not just in the uterine lining, but also in the brain. Yeah. I can't tell you how excited I am about day five, day six, where that little hit that estradiol is on the come up. I'm just like, oh, come on day five. So what is supposed to happen is during that time that you would have enough like resilience, but not not everybody has that. Now, and then the other thing that I always recommend is using nature's gift to women and men too, but we'll focus on women. And that is the wide array of phytoestrogens that come from foods that can have dramatic effects. So don't underestimate medicine from food, like, you know, we call it food is medicine. These little phytoestrogens that are, and we can talk more about that, but that's one of the therapeutics that I always employ. Now, what, and getting back to what's going on in the menstrual cycle, as you start proceeding through the follicular or proliferative, now follicular is how you talk about the first half of the menstrual cycle when you're referring to the ovary and proliferative is what you're talking about when you're talking about the uterine lining. It's funny how we have these like dual words. So you're proliferating the uterine lining and in the ovary, the follicles are developing. So that's why we have follicular and proliferative phase. And the estradiol level is, as you said, it's rising. Now, when you get to around, if you have a 28-day cycle around day 12, you get this giant spike of estradiol. Now, when you have that giant spike, that is the most anti-inflammatory. So estradiol modulates every aspect of the immune system, every aspect, every immune cell in the body has estrogen receptors. And 
the cells that are called the innate immune system, these are the macrophages, the neutrophils, the mast cells, the monocytes, that they are like the first attack part of the immune system. If you have injury or pathogens trying to get in the body, those are actually down-regulated, like they're sort of suppressed a bit when you have that really high estradiol, which actually is, of course, has a major purpose. It's so that you don't have your immune system destroy the sperm, which are really foreign entities, right? Just like a pathogen. It has different proteins than our own cells. So the immune system is quieted right around the time that you would have sex and the sperm would come in so you don't kill it. And then what happens is after that, you have this giant luteinizing hormone, LH spike, and that triggers ovulation. Now, it turns out that in the brain and elsewhere in the body, but we'll focus on the brain, there's this other amazing system called the endocannabinoid system. And it's a lipid signaling system made from fatty acids derived from omega-6. And there's a few different ones. And then there's like relatives and the plants, hemp and marijuana, cannabis, they have their own little magical plant ingredients that actually, like cannabis, that can bind to the receptors of our own innate system or endogenous system. So we're not going to talk about cannabis here, but we're just going to talk about, but now, you know, that's another whole topic we could talk about another day. But just so you know, that's where the name endocannabinoid system came from. It was like reverse engineering. First, they discovered that cannabis affected the body and then it bound to receptors, but nobody knew how this system worked. Then they discovered that specifically the receptors and that we had our own signaling agents called, and then they named them endocannabinoids after cannabis. So endo means within us, endo, and cannabinoid is from cannabis. So that's like the ultimate reverse engineering. So our own system, the endocannabinoid system has in the brain tremendous anxiolytic effects. That means lowering anxiety. So it turns out that one of the endocannabinoids called anandamide, it has this incredible, as do the others, but that one we'll talk about specifically, has this incredible relationship with estrogen and progesterone. So estradiol, as it rises, increases the production of anandamide. And anandamide calms everybody down, calms everyone down. So a lot of the activity that estradiol has as a reducing agent for anxiety is probably through its action through the endocannabinoid system, like as a second messenger from the estradiol, kind of like a relay, you know, like the estradiol increases the anandamide and that is the calming effect. So that is increased when you have that big spike of estradiol but then after you have the spike and there's a feedback system, so the anandamide that gets higher, it then feeds back on LH, luteinizing hormone, which then drops because it spikes and it drops. And then the estradiol drops. So there's actually a big drop. And for some women, it actually dips pretty low right after ovulation. Yes, it actually. And that's when some women will have spotting, like they call it mid-cycle spotting and even a little cramping because of the estradiol dropping so much. And for some, that can be like a little startling into their emotions because the anandamide suddenly dropped, the estradiol dropped after just being so high. 
But then, and I've heard that before that right after ovulation, some women feel a little heightened sense of anxiety or they just feel a mood shift. Like some women are like, it happens twice in my cycle. It happens here and here, you know? And so thanks for acknowledging kind of the process of what's happening. And also when you get that big spike of estradiol, it upregulates the receptors. So the receptors work better for testosterone, which also makes people feel good. Testosterone is also has a lot of effects in the brain. It's also neuroprotective and it increases the receptors for progesterone, which is very anti-inflammatory and also neuroprotective and also calming. But what happens is then as you start producing all that progesterone in the second part, the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle or the secretory when you're talking about the uterine lining. So it's luteal for the ovary, secretory for the uterine lining. Then progesterone goes up high. Progesterone in turn down-regulates the endocannabinoid system big time, drops it very low, and it stays low if you're pregnant throughout the whole pregnancy, and it rises right at the time you go into labor. It's like a really fascinating thing. And then it lowers the receptor function of the estrogen too. So now you have this yin-yang kind of issue. You're sort of on thin ice. You have progesterone, which is neuroprotective and calming and can increase GABA and sleep and relaxation in some ways, but you're also decreasing your anandamide, the feel-good endocannabinoid. You're decreasing the receptor function of the estradiol. So now you have this sort of crazy balance, which for some women, it isn't working. It isn't working for them. And they're having emotional swings. Even earlier, like even we're talking about mid luteal. Oh, yes, because it's it's happening as soon as the progesterone is produced, because you get the drop. As soon as you have progesterone, you're dropping your endocannabinoid production because progesterone suppresses the endocannabinoids, whereas estradiol increases them. This is like this huge balance. It's always going on in the body between different receptors and other systems and the interactions between them. So now you have your progesterone that's reducing your endocannabinoids. Those feel good. You're reducing your estradiol receptors. And by reducing your estradiol, you're going receptor function, you're going to impact on a number of neurotransmitters and so on, and you're going to impact mood. And it's really variable from woman to woman. And for some women, this can trigger a great deal of emotional imbalance and stress. So what I recommend, and there's no clear-cut, easy answer for this, is number one, definitely eat a lot of phytoestrogens. And those are like lignans. Those come from things like flaxseed. A lot of women know you're supposed to eat a lot of flaxseed, but all seeds and nuts have lignans. And then soy. Now, poor soy has been maligned a lot too, but organic, whole, unprocessed would be like the bean, the edamame, tofu, miso, tempeh. But of course, if you don't have an allergic reaction or other problems, but it also has been shown, it has the isoflavones. And then fruits like red grapes have resveratrol and apples, onions, garlic, they have quercetin, which also reduce inflammation and pomegranates, ellagic acid. These are all phytoestrogen containing plants that can really help a great deal 
with mood. And then also the whole grains. So they also have a lot of the lignans. And so these can really help with mood. So what else can we do? I love to do menstrual mapping testing because often what we find, especially in women as they're going into their late 30s and 40s, but sometimes earlier, what do we find? We find that they're actually ovulating and they're having regular cycles, but they're not producing enough. Enough what? But it could be estradiol or it could be progesterone or it could be both. So instead of just saying, I'll just give you progesterone, sometimes that's not the answer. A lot of times the answer is give estradiol because you're suppressing it too much and you're not making enough. And so you really give a little bit of estradiol back. You keep the, you don't give any progesterone, just estradiol, and you can change the whole paradigm. In fact, it affects women so well, they're now showing that you can give it back to women who have bipolar 2 disease and it can help. You can give it to women who have postpartum depression and it can help. So they're finding that giving estradiol, not progesterone, can make a huge difference. But for some people, it is the progesterone. So you can't make a great generalization about this because there's this incredible balance between these hormones that in some people, it can be dysregulated. And for some women where the progesterone isn't enough, what lowers the natural production of progesterone in the luteal phase? Inflammation. So if you have inflammation in your ovary from any source like endocrine disruptors, lack of sleep, high stress, sedentary lifestyle, um, poor nutrient intake, anything and everything, chronic infections. So anything that can cause inflammation in the ovary can reduce the production of progesterone. So I just take a very personalized approach to this with every patient. I want to see what's going on during her luteal phase instead of just saying, we'll just try this or we'll just try this, that type of thing. So it really can make a huge difference. And then women, like you mentioned, who have this kind of issue during their even their young years, like in their 20s and 30s, when they hit perimenopause, their chance of having exacerbated mental health problems, anxiety, depression, mood swings, goes up 400%. In a woman who never had any previous issues, it doubles. So what are, what are the statistics? Women in their 40s and 50s, almost a quarter of them are on antidepressants. What is that saying about our health, our world, and our medical approach to perimenopause and early menopause to think that almost a quarter of all women are being put on antidepressants, which they use for everything, including PMS, including you name it, what hot flashes, they're, they're giving antidepressants. So you know how we are. We want to give what you're deficient in. If you are deficient in B12 and you're having depressive symptoms because, or B6, which is also a very important vitamin for mood. We don't give an antidepressant. We give the vitamin you're deficient in, right? We don't, we want to treat the real cause. And the real cause is not that you have a deficiency of this drug. Maybe you do have a deficiency of serotonin, but there are better ways to get your serotonin up than to give this pharmaceutical. And also the pharmaceutical is not going to help your bones. In fact, SSRIs increase osteoporosis, the exact opposite of what we want. 
And I knew that, yeah. I want to just go back a little bit on the menstrual mapping. Dr. Gersh, how are you assessing? Is it just multiple blood tests over over that luteal phase? How are you getting clarity on, because obviously both estradiol and progesterone are at play in the luteal phase. And so, and, and, and I'm not sure if you're looking at estradiol also in the follicular phase, or if you're just looking at it when it's on that rise after post-ovulation. Um, but I was curious, is there reckon, because I know a lot of women go in to get their hormones tested and a lot of doctors have no idea what they're doing and they kind of miss the boat on how to really determine what's going on. But then also, we're also just guessing most of the time. Well, yeah. And so we want, I love data. So if I can get it and it's not going to be invasive or prohibitively expensive, and it, it really isn't. So getting that would be a way to do it, to get lots and lots of blood tests, but that would not be terribly popular. So this is done through dried urine. So it's multiple urine specimens throughout the entire cycle, the follicular phase and the luteal phase. And then by looking at the urine metabolites, you can actually then create an incredible graph. And there are a couple of companies that do this. And you actually get a graph of the actual menstrual cycle of your estradiol. You can actually see exactly what's happening, the spike, and we and then the progesterone, and also looks at luteinizing hormone. Some labs do other things as well. So this gives you an amazing pictorial, exactly what's happening that cycle with these hormones. And it's really fantastic. So you have like, what's the ideal? Because you always want to compare against this ideal cycle. And there is variation, like everything in life, there's a reference range. So there's a range of normal, but we want to go to what's the ideal. And often the ideal and then the reality that I see in the test result, they're light years apart. Like here's where the estradiol level should be. And this is what it is on this person's graph. And it's like everything is miniaturized. So you have a little spike. Instead of a big spike, you have a little spike and you have a little rise of progesterone instead of this big, nice mound. And and no wonder that you say, no wonder this person doesn't feel right. And then when you don't have the proper hormonal balance, you do get what I call road rage without the road, you know, and, and it's really horrible, this irritability status where women feel so horrible. They're like wanting to like eat their family alive. It's like, well, and they're like the monster woman has arrived. So we don't want that. Nobody wants that. And they can't control it. And they don't want to go on a lot of pharmaceuticals because First of all, they know that that's not really addressing why this is happening, but that is the standard approach. And that is not what we want for our female population. Mm, It makes so much sense. And I'm curious too, because I know that in perimenopause, things can get, I mean, obviously we're talking about a decline. Hormones are declining. And I know that it's variable for every single woman. And I know that things are kind of, it seems to me that lifestyle is kind of speeding that up for some women, women who've dealt with stress or have a lot of adverse childhood events that it seems to have been been sped up. Maybe women are experiencing some of these more intense symptoms in their late 30s versus maybe 44. And so when you're looking at this, particularly for women in perimenopause, and I'm sure that there's still kind of optimals or ideals, but do you find that to be a little bit more challenging? Since I know that estradiol, you know, things can, it, I know that estradiol is kind of like, I feel like she can be on a roller coaster ride a little bit in this phase. Does it get a little bit more challenging for for doctors to look at some of this 
because it can be a lot less consistent versus, you know, the 30 years of, you know, for some women having a more consistent cycle. Well, for me, the most challenging group is the perimenopausal group. Absolutely. Menopause has its own challenges, but it's easy because I know that the hormone level is for estradiol and progesterone is zero. Okay. So it's like a clean slate, whatever I give, that's what they get. Okay. Now perimenopause is a whole different story here because when I give hormone supplementation, it's not like giving a birth control pill at all. I'm not suppressing their ovarian function, like basically taking their ovaries offline and taking them out of the picture. They're not doing anything. By the way, is what most doctors are trying to do because they have no idea. I, I can't tell you how many women come to me and they're just like, I was just put on birth control because doc, they were like, we don't know what to do with you. We don't know where that's how we're going to shut down these symptoms. And, um, and it, it just breaks my heart. It's such a disservice. Well, it's an easy out for the doctor, but once you accept and really understand what birth control pills are, they are officially, and you can go to toxicology.gov, which is part of the NIH website. What does it say? They're endocrine disruptors. Every single element of a birth control pill, the ethanol estradiol and the progestin, which is a made up word for mimic, but not real progesterone, they're all endocrine disruptors. In fact, their original point, you know, was to disrupt your ovarian function. So you couldn't become pregnant. Did you get pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And when you have ovarian challenges, we'll say the hormones are not being produced in a way that's creating the exact desired effect, then the easy solution is just get rid of them. Just stop having them work and then give something in exchange that will sometimes help symptoms. I can never deny that there can be some symptom improvement. You're not restoring anything. You're not like fixing the periods. You're getting rid of the periods. You have may have bleeding but it's and it's real blood, but it's not because you ovulated. It's all smoke and mirrors. And birth control pills do increase the risk of cervical cancer significantly. They increase the risk of breast cancer. They increase the risk of blood clots and hypertension. That's because they are pro-inflammatory. Part of the inflammatory response is increasing blood clotting and increasing constriction of your artery. It's all about, it's all life-saving types of maneuvers of the body if you're either traumatized or you're infected with a pathogen, but you don't want this happening in your day-to-day -day life when nothing else is instituting the need for such events, like creating a pro-inflammatory state. That's why you'd never give birth control pills to someone who had blood clots or uncontrolled high blood pressure or had a heart attack because they're not health pills. So that is not my first choice. The only time I would ever use those hormones would be as a pharmaceutical to deal with, say, acute hemorrhaging or some sort of thing. Then it's I'm using it as a, a short-term pharmaceutical, but it's not hormone replacement and it's not managing your hormones in a way that would be ideal, not even close. So it's a challenge with perimenopausal women because when I give hormones, I am not putting their ovaries out of- Out of commission. And I'm curious, real quick on a little side note on, let's say- a woman is put on 44 or 45 on birth control because she's having pretty intense symptoms, maybe symptoms around like heavy bleeding. And then 52 comes along and she's still on them because no one told her otherwise. What kind of detriment has that impacted on her life? 
in her health span if she'd been on those birth control pills to manage symptoms for those seven years when when what could have been happening is, you know, bringing her back to a place of, of optimal balance. You know, I'm just curious, like, well, how much does that set us back? Do we understand that? Actually, the answer, that's a fabulous question. The answer is no, because no one's collecting the data. The only real data we have is, and this is now published and it's very limited, if you start birth control pills on a teen, you know, this is like rampant now, very, very young teens. In fact, it's considered totally medically acceptable to start birth control pills on any girl by one year past her first period and to then be on them indefinitely. So, I mean, we can give them now to 11, 12-year-olds. It's like unbelievable. And then they're just on them. But if you start them before the age of 20, so say in the teens, it increases lifetime risk of heart attacks and strokes. Now, what I can say in my own, and that's the only real published data, because we have very limited data. We do know if you are on birth control pills and you're young during the bone growing years, you will have a suboptimal skeleton. Right, because it actually stunts that growth. I think we peak around 26 or so, 27, and we don't build, we don't have the foundation built. I also know it has a profound impact on brain development. Oh, absolutely. And vaginal development and bladder development. So there's some data that if you start birth control pills and you're on them, a while, quite a while, nobody defines that, and they're, and you're young, you're more likely to have painful sex, to have vaginal discomfort, to have overactive bladder and frequent urination. So you have small bladder capacity, it affects the stretchiness of the bladder. So it doesn't take so much urine to make that sensation you got to go. So they do what I call bathroom mapping. Everywhere they look, where's the bathroom here? Because I got to go. They can't walk past the bathroom. They got to go in every time because, and that happens when you start birth control pills young. So we have more data on sexuality. Uh, It can increase sex hormone binding globulin. And that's a very important protein made by the liver, but you're not supposed to have it permanently high and it can make it so it doesn't even come down. And so it binds up your testosterone so that you never have actual enough free or unbound testosterone to work and create the job that testosterone is supposed to do. So you may have lowered sex drive and sexual response forever if you start them, you're on them. But we don't have, isn't this like fascinating because it's such a great question. What if you're on them in your mid forties into your, even up to age 55 is considered acceptable. For those years, what does it mean for the rest of a woman's life, for her bone, for her brain, for her cardiovascular system, urological system, and so on? There's no data, nobody wants it. But what I can tell you is what I observe. So in terms of what happens is estrogen that's in a birth control pill, it works on predominantly the alpha receptor, which is very important. Estrogen is a family. That's important to know as a a base for everyone who maybe they didn't know this. Estrogen is not a hormone. It's a family of hormones. And in the human female adult, there's three types and they each have a letter E and a number one, two, three. And the one that the ovaries make is E2 or estradiol. Now, the estrogen that is predominantly coming from a birth control pill in the bloodstream is a different estrogen 
estrone. Now, some of that will turn into estradiol too. It's not exclusively estrone, but it's heavily estrone. And there are different estrogen receptors. And the alpha receptor is the one that estrone predominantly binds to. Estradiol binds to all the receptors in a beautiful, balanced way. So with receptors, we know this, and there's plenty of data on this. It's kind of like everything in life, use it or lose it. So if you don't activate a receptor for a length of time, it becomes the equivalent of like rusty, okay? There's no real word for it. It just becomes less functional. And so this is a problem. Now, does it come back to life if you start putting the proper estrogen into that receptor? Somewhat. We don't really have great data. We know that it can come back to life somewhat over time, but it may never be as good. It, you know, like it just is what it is. Like if you're put in bed for a long time, even not that long, what happens to your muscles? We know that you can be put in a leg cast and you're, you take off the cast in one month and your thigh is half the size, you know, because you weren't using it. It's amazing that use it or lose it kind of thing. And that was one month. We're talking seven years here or however, you know, these, this isn't months that women are being put on these. They tend to be the hardest to actually get right when you give them hormones. I'm, I'm being totally honest because the receptors are not receiving properly and you really have to be patient. They can have irregular bleeding more often. They don't respond as well. They sometimes have like overshoot in terms of symptom response because when you give estradiol, it works on all the receptors. And if you wanna give a high enough amount to help stimulate the beta receptor, then you're giving more to the alpha receptor. And the alpha receptor, for example, is on the breast. So if you're trying to give enough to get the beta receptor going, which by the way, is the dominant one in the cerebral cortex, right? For think, for, you know, mood. For cognitive function. I mean, let's be honest, twice as many women than men have dementia, like more. Yeah. And so you're, you're trying to get that beta receptor activated. And it's also the beta receptor is the dominant one in the GI tract. I mean, it's just really critically important. And it's been sort of not, not getting enough stimulation all the time that on the birth control pills, it got some, but not enough. So you're trying to push the dose to try to get those receptors back online, but simultaneously you're upregulating the receptors for you know the alpha receptor in the breast and they get a lot of breast tenderness. And this is really a challenge. So we have to, everyone will get where they need to be, but it can take a while. So women who've been on birth control pills a long time, and then they hit menopause and suddenly they go off of them and now they want to go on hormones. It is more challenging. Yeah. And I've heard that a lot. That is not a fun ride. That's not being written about. I've heard from so many women in their own anecdotal experience are just like, this is just awful. And, you know, and, and not understanding why, again, there was no explanation as to what was happening. It just like, man, this isn't working. Like I, I feel worse because, you know, of the impact that the birth control had had for all those years. And I'm thinking this through more and more now, because normally I am very against giving biased. So you may know bias. Bias is a blend of estriol, which is E3, the dominant estrogen of pregnancy made by the placenta. And there's always a little bit because it's also a derivative of estradiol, but it's a very small quantity. But there's been this like, like trend of sorts 
in the uh, functional medicine crowd to give a lot of this bias where you give predominantly estriol and a little bit of estradiol with the idea being that you're going to help with breast cancer prevention because breast, the alpha receptor is the dominant one there. But the problem is you need to have this balance. That's not natural. That's not physiologic at all. I've been hearing the same thing, that it's a no-go. But there may be a place for additional estriol as a transitional thing in women who've been on birth control pills a long time because it's the beta receptor that wasn't getting the action to the same degree. So that may be a unique situation. That's not hormone replacement in the usual sense. It's almost like therapeutic repair of your beta receptor that you're trying to get more activated, that giving a little extra estriol, maybe for six months or something like that. Maybe, you know, this is something that we should think about. Like a kickstart in a way. Exactly. And this is another issue for women who have been put on birth control pills. I'm seeing this all the time now. They're put on birth control pills when they're 13. And then when they're 32, can you believe this? Now they're going off because, and they want to have a baby. And they're told that maybe like within three months they could do that. Oh, it's mind blowing. Some of them have been on birth control pills continuously for 20 years. And now they go off of them and they explode with what? Testosterone. Like what the heck? They're exploding with testosterone because nothing is working properly. The estrogen receptors in the brain aren't working right. So they're putting out all this excessive LH luteinizing hormone to try to trigger more estrogen production in the ovaries, which have been kind of on long-term sabbatical. Like the whole time sabbatical. Let's Yeah. I'm not, oh my gosh. And then so the ovaries, which is a whole different skill set, because the LH triggers testosterone, which is the precursor to estradiol. All estradiol is derived from testosterone. So you get this explosion of of testosterone, but the enzyme aromatase in the ovary hasn't been used now for 20 years. So once again, use it or lose it. That enzyme doesn't just immediately come back to life. The whole system is working, right? Like you suppress everything for 20 years, and then you think it's all going to be perfectly resurrected. It's not happening. I can tell you, it's just not happening. And so they don't convert the testosterone properly into the estradiol. The brain says, I want more estradiol, puts out more LH, more testosterone. So they all become like PCOS. They're all making, they're all getting acne, irregular cycles. And it's like, oh, the pills suppressed my PCOS symptoms. No, it created your PCOS. Yeah, I always think of a post-birth control syndrome, PCOS, is like this. Yeah, it is, and it's not talked about, you know, and like there's no research on it either. I mean, this, but I see this all the time, and it's like, where's the data on giving birth control pills starting at age 13, 14 for 20 consecutive years? Oh, there is none. There is no data. And what is that doing long-term, like you mentioned, to the brain? We know that it's affecting the things that we've studied, like the cardiovascular and the bone. Why would we not think it's affecting the brain? What I worry about is they're going to get dementia earlier or more higher incidence. Well, aren't we already seeing that? Well, you know what? This is the problem with so many things in medicine. The timeline from the, the trigger to the 
onset of the event is so long and there's so many multiple factors that can come into it, so many variables that they're not going to point the finger. And no one can do a study because, well, who's going to fund it and who's going to actually do it? So it's all association. So you have to go back and look at huge numbers. And then in countries, this sort of can be done in countries in Europe where they have socialized medicine, like Sweden and Finland and and England, where they keep tabs on everybody, especially the Scandinavian countries where everybody's in the system and they keep records of every prescription ever made and they know if it's filled and then they look at all the diagnostic codes. So somebody would have to go through and they do this for some things like ovarian cancer. They, They have looked at some things, but they haven't looked at dementia that I have ever seen looking at how many years and at what age a young woman started birth control pills and then what was her ultimate dementia type of of event. But somebody needs to look at that because I'll bet, and you'll bet the same, we'll both be betting on the same thing, is that yes, it does increase it. And we know that, for example, with osteoporosis, that even a little bit of extra estrogen in the early years of the reproductive life can have dramatic impacts on fracture risk later in life. So it doesn't take that much here, like a little thing to create giant effects later. So I can't believe that it doesn't. And when I look at the 90% of women in the United States are on hormonal contraception, and they think that if they're using the IUDs that they're home free, but those hormones are suppressing ovulation in at least 50% of women. Yeah, and so they're not having the proper hormone. Well, and even if they were maybe not fully suppressing, I'd have to believe that they're still diminishing those hormones. I mean, even if women are ovulating some of the time, there's still a diminishment that's happening. I would say that that's not optimal ovulation either. No, and it's, it is definitely altering how, how the hormones are being produced. If it's suppressing ovulation, it's huge effect. And if it's just diminishing the ovarian production of hormones over time, that is also a huge effect. You know, to, that's the hormesis, a little, a little something creating ultimately a big effect. So yeah, so for sure. And then look at the issue of mental illness. What's the data on that? It's, you know, I told you like almost a quarter of women are on antidepressants from age 40 through the into the 50s. And just as a general statement, it's close to 20% of people now have been told that they have mental illness or they know it, you know, so it's, it's, and that's probably an underestimate because most people are not actually seeing healthcare professionals. You know, in terms of, I'm not going to get on anything like in pharmaceutical wise to manage my, my rage without the road. And I know it's a hormone imbalance. I know that I need to be supplementing. And I was, that's why I was really curious. You know, my gut instinct has been is like, I, I need to look at estradi- estradiol, and I've looked at it on different different areas of my continuum, but not across the entire board. You know, I've looked at a snapshot here. I've looked at a snapshot here. When I was breastfeeding, ugh, it was just you know, I was it was depleted across the board. And so now that this has been three months of this, I know that I need to dig deeper into. You know, it probably isn't just. Obviously, it isn't just progesterone because that's all. That's what I'm taking, right? And this is where. Um, It's so important to understand that 
the trajectory of perimenopause. So the trajectory is down, but along the path down, you can have spikes up. That's like a roller coaster. So you can, that's the one time when you can have true estrogen dominance that has to do with ovarian produced estradiol only in the perimenopause. Otherwise you don't have that. If you have so-called estrogen dominance, it's because you have too much estrone being produced by adipose tissue or endocrine disruptors. That's why I don't like that term because no one knows what it means when people use it. So I just describe what it really is, what's really happening in the body. But during the perimenopause, there are times the estrogen levels going down, but then it can spike up to really high amounts. So my, and this is not proven, there's not published data, but if I give estradiol, like a baseline, why do those gigantic spikes and then dips, why are those occurring? Because the brain, which has sensors to pretty much everything and has to estradiol, the brain sees the levels going too low. So it shoots out the information to the pituitary gland, which then puts out this explosion of gonadotropins, LH, and then FSH. And that in turn creates this hyper-response in the ovary, which is still capable of responding, not forever, but at that time, it's still capable. So the estrogen production shoots up, but then it goes down again. So then it goes up again. That's why the perimenopausal years is the most common time for fraternal twins. Yes, because she'll the, those ovaries will pop out too. She's like, oh, I didn't do it last month, but let me just get these two out this month. Maybe they think they can't have kids and then they have twins because they get, it's like a hyperstim. So if I give estradiol, just like a baseline, then the brain will always know there's enough. So it won't do that shooting up of the, the gonadotropin. So you, we won't have the big swings. And so we, instead of going down, I'm like giving a plateau. Now you may have a little bit of spikes, but it's really helping. There's no published data on this, but I what? I have never even considered this as a possibility. I'm just mind blown right now. I just figured we just had to endure that. No way. No, we can keep that from going like this with the big spikes going down. We can just level it off and make only maybe a little bit of spikes so that we can just take that whole trajectory and change it in a way that can keep people calm. Because what they found, for example, with bipolar 2, which is much more prevalent in females, and just like migraines, by the way. Yeah, so I have three-day migraines at the exact same time that I have this perimenopausal rage. And so I am not only overstimulated and I have intense pain, but I'm also rageful. And I'm a gentle, positive parent. And so... <laughs> My husband gets it. Let me tell you, my son does not, but I feel like I'm like, it's, it's a lose, lose. I have these horrible migraines and I'm in this rage moment and I'm just praying for an end. Well, we really do understand this now. The trigger to most, nothing is hundred percent, but most migraines, which remember 80% are in women, the trigger to most migraines. I mean, there are other triggers too, but when we're talking about the hormones and also for exacerbation of bipolar is fluctuating. It's the drop. And this is, remember, the trajectory down and spiking and down and spike. So if we can keep things level and you don't have big dips and spikes, oh my gosh, you can tremendously ameliorate mood changes, mood problems, and migraines. So giving baseline estradiol, and by the way, there's published data on this with migraines that you can 
prevent the migraine by giving that baseline estradiol, by just doing it either a cream, a gel, a patch, you can pick the one that works for you. And by the way, this another thing that happens around the perimenopause is appetite dysregulation, like cravings and binging and night eating. So there's actually also this one, there is published data that giving estradiol can dramatically lower cravings and binge eating. That's amazing. It's crazy, Dr. Gersh. I had a, I woke up with a migraine today. I'm a, a little too, I, I would feel like, let's see, what day am I? I'm still in, I'm still in my first week of the my luteal phase. I ovulated like well, four days ago. Oh, well, you had that big drop. And today was my first migraine. And I'm just like, oh, because I just, I don't know. It's a crapshoot how many I'm going to have between now and my first day of my menstrual cycle. Well, you know, these fluctuations are, for some women, they totally trigger this. Yeah, I, I made sure I woke up early enough. I wake up and I'm like, is it? And then I was like, I need to take something because I knew I had this big interview with you and I wanted to show up fully present. And so I was like, let me just knock this thing out with with drugs real quick so I can show up today for you. And I'd let my husband know too, because I always need to let him know, you know, just to let the family know where mama's at. Well, there is a place for drugs. I'm I'm integrative. I'm not alternative. It's a yeah. It was a it's a pain, like etc. Migraine. Yeah. Right. Sometimes you need to do rescue. I mean, but the reality is that our goal is prevention always, not rescue. But we have sometimes we have to do rescue too. But anyway, I'm glad you seem to be totally on your mark. I mean, I manage with them so much. You know, it was once. Um, I had my son at 41, but it was my whole pregnancy. I probably had 50 migraines, give or take, and they've continued since. So I've had them for now consistently for three years, you know, and they've gotten worse since, um, they've gotten worse this year, especially since I stopped breastfeeding. Well, that breaks my heart because that's really alters your quality of life. So Definitely. And there's, there are, I mentioned like fluctuations of, of estradiol can be a huge trigger, but there are other triggers like not getting enough sleep or sometimes even like getting different light exposure, circadian rhythm disorder, inflammation, chronic viruses like COVID, you know, so anything that creates inflammation will create neuroinflammation. So definitely your project. We got to get you right. <laughs> and But it could be as simple. It could be as simple as just getting a little background estradiol going in you all the time to keep things from getting too fluctuating with your estradiol production. In the 40s, there's no question that things are changing. The average normal so-called menopause in the US is 45 to 55. Remember, this is defined as an entire year without any bleeding. So 45 to 55, if you're someone that's actually going to go through menopause in your 40s, then when you're in your first half of your 40s, you're already well into perimenopause. If your last period is going to be at 45, 6, 7, or 8 even. So definitely, I can tell you that there's almost 100% that you are perimenopausal. So there you go. It is what it is. Oh no, I'm I'm well aware. Yeah. No, 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 you are aware, but there may be listeners out there. Oh yes, many women who have no idea. Oh, I'm not, I'm only 43 or I'm only 42. This can't be me. No, yes, it can be, <laughs> definitely. 
And there are just as many women who go into menopause in their late 40s as in their early 50s. The average is like 50, 51, but it's spread across 45 to 55. And then there are some women that are between 40 and 40, up to 45. That's called and over 55 is late. And before 40 is called premature. And it is, it is definitely an issue of early onset. Like you mentioned before, like what's happening? Well, we live in a world that has so many endocrine disruptors. Everything that creates disruption of your natural hormones, inflammation can age the ovaries, damage the eggs, and limit your ovarian lifespan, which affects your health span. So the longer you have ovarian function, the longer you will have health span. And even when we give hormones, which I give very readily, it's not quite the same as having normal ovarian function. We do the best we can. So having normal ovarian function as long as possible is really important and very, very of contributory to health span. So everyone should eat lots of vegetables and exercise and get sleep, avoidance of environmental chemicals and toxicities and so on, because all of those are contributors to advanced aging of your ovaries, which is really not been appreciated. You know, the ovaries, I, as a gynecologist, I always questioned, why are we taking out, this was standard, standard, now it isn't, but it was for decades that if you did a hysterectomy for a benign disease like uterine fibroids, okay, there's nothing wrong with the ovaries. The ovaries are just sitting there minding their own business in someone who is, say, 43, okay? They're 43. They have ovarian function. They're Maybe they're in perimenopause, but they're not in menopause. They may have another decade left of ovarian function. And it's like, well, you're already there. She's over 40. She's not having any more kids. What difference does it make? They could cause cancer. You could get ovarian cancer. So if you're doing a hysterectomy, just take out the ovaries. We have done, and I always said, why would we take out the ovaries? Just because they're in the neighborhood? They're not doing anything. They're not part of the problem. It's like, oh yeah, it's preventative medicine. Because then if you don't have ovaries, you won't get ovarian cancer. Ovarian cancer which predominantly is actually fallopian tube cancer. Now we understand it. The vast majority of so-called ovarian cancer actually originated in the fallopian tube. But that said, for whatever number of women we prevented ovarian cancer, we did way more damage, way more damage in terms of taking out those ovaries unnecessarily. So that's like the sad part of conventional medicine when they mean well, but they do terrible things that harm people. We now know that just taking out the appendix, for example, for no good reason, just because you're in the neighborhood, also increases a lifetime risk of colon cancer. So like there's nothing is purposeless in the body and the ovaries continue to make testosterone for life. And now they have published data that removal of the ovaries unnecessarily for no reason other than you're just in the neighborhood um, before the age of 65 shortens women's lives. That's how important ovarian health is, even without estrogen and progesterone, just the testosterone. So we never want to underestimate the value of ovarian testosterone production to health span as well. So don't, don't let anyone take out your ovaries for no good reason, please. Thanks for sharing that, because I, I, I know that there is very much a correlation between ovarian function and, or a, ovarian aging and just overall aging, and that really the intention is to have ovarian longevity, you know, reproductive longevity for as long as possible. 
as long as we can, you know, write it till the wheels fall off. And then, like you said, and we started, don't wait until end stage ovarian aging to start hormones. Don't wait to the end. Wait until you begin. Okay. Don't, you know, you don't want to start hormones when you don't absolutely need them. You have perfectly functioning ovaries, but delaying the onset of hormone therapy is not a good thing. We want, we know that you start losing bone. You start losing collagen. The quickest way to know if your estrogen is declining is look in the mirror because the skin is the outward reflection of inside everything. And the skin, every layer of the skin has estrogen receptors, the epidermis, the dermis, the sebaceous glands, the sebum production, the hair follicles. There's not one structure in skin from top to bottom that doesn't have estrogen receptors. So without estrogen, you don't make the same amount of collagen or elastin, or you lose the fat, the proper support fat in the skin, the ceramides that keep in moisture, the hyaluronic acid, the hair follicles like wither, you know, and then you get finer hair and so on. Androgenic alopecia starts to become dominant. And everything about your hair and your skin is reflection of your estrogen status. So if you think, oh, my skin is really getting dry. Oh, I'm really starting to show a lot of wrinkles. That is a really clear clue. Your estrogen levels are declining. And that doesn't mean, oh my gosh, I'm 25. <laughs> you know, like I need, like there is a point we don't do that. But, you know, the reality is, because you remember everything is aging from the day you're born. But really and truly, if you're like around age 40-ish and you're really seeing some significant changes in your skin and also your oral hygiene, like you go to the dentist and the dentist starts saying, oh my gosh, you're having so much gum recession. What's going on here? Another big red flag, your estrogen levels are declining because the mouth is very, very uh, key to estrogen status. When you don't have enough estrogen, you have changes in your oral microbiome, your gum health. And that's why women have very high rates, very sad of tooth loss. So we don't want that. So that's another clue. If you start suddenly having changes in your gum health and you don't know why, because it's like nothing's changed. I'm not doing it. But yes. Also, another big clue is, uh uh-oh, belly fat. It's like, what is happening to me? My waist is going, I'm getting this belly fat, I'm eating the same, I'm exercising because estrogen regulates the creation of energy, insulin, adipose tissue functioning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fat distribution. Exactly. You want your fat to move over to your tummy? Lose that estrogen and don't replace it. Also, if you find changes in your sleep quality, that you just keep middle of the night awakening, you're not feeling rested, you just start peeing a lot during the night, You that type of thing is another really high clue. Of course, night sweats and hot flashes is like the most obvious. And vaginal dryness and change in sex drive can be related to estrogen. Also, if you feel like you're sort of removed, like you don't feel like you're bonded to your family as much because your oxytocin is related. Like a disassociation. Yeah. Like, just leave me alone, everybody. I'll just sit here in the corner, you know, and look at my cell phone. Like, you you don't even want to socialize so much. That's another clue. So you got to be your own best detective for your own health because 
your doctor meaning well, you know, the same doctor that took out all those ovaries unnecessarily, they're different, which are often way behind the times in terms of what really is indicated and medically best. So you got to be your own best advocate, your own best detective of what is happening in my body that is really showing that my estrogen level is dropping. And of course, mood changes. Like suddenly you're having PMS where you didn't have it before or road rage without the road or with the road, right? So, you know, that type of thing. So these are huge clues that yes, you really will benefit from some estradiol supplementation, not replacement, but supplementation. And we don't do that with thyroid. We don't say, oh, you're just a little hypothyroid, so we'll just ignore it. No, we want to treat to optimal, like you said. And in pregnancy or fertility issues, we are so strict now, right? This is now, this is the consensus. You got to get that TSH to be between one and 2.5, no exceptions. No, you put them on some thyroid. Well, why are we not looking for optimal at every stage for every point in life? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, obviously I have my thyroid taken care of by a functional, a good dear friend of mine, functional doctor. But when I was getting, you know, I was pregnant at 40, my OBGYN, I'd never seen anyone in the conventional world care about my thyroid like my OBGYN did during the time that I was pregnant. Like I was really fascinated. I was like, oh, this is interesting. Like I'm already managing it over here, you know, and we were on top of it too, but she was extremely interested in making sure that it was in optimal range. And I was like, gosh, this is the only time I think I've ever had someone, you know, in the conventional sense, pay attention. Well, let's hope this will grow, right? So that we don't just care about it when you're pregnant or trying to get pregnant. Why don't we care about every hormone in the body being optimized at every stage of life? And sure would benefit everyone with her health span. That is I also felt like the only time anyone was really like, it was really interesting to me during pregnancy was the concern around insulin. Like obviously insulin resistance is a natural response in pregnancy, but really paying attention to that gestational diabetes. And I was like, go, wow, they they really, I feel like so many women are pre-diabetic and no one's saying anything. But during pregnancy, especially at my age, they were like, we need to stay on top of this. And I was like, gosh, well, why, how about the other millions of women in their forties who are have insulin resistance or, or are on the, on the like precipice of prediabetes. And we're not saying anything, you know, but during your pregnancy, like let, we got to stay, I was just really fascinating to me how hyper aware the medical system was around those type of things. And then we didn't care once I wasn't pregnant anymore. <laughs> I was going to say exactly that. And after the baby's born, it's like, oh, whatever. <laughs> you know? Good luck. <laughs> um, last question I had, cause you know, this is just kind of even just getting us off that estrogen roller coaster, which feels just so intense and havocky. In your personal experience in practice, you know, what is the average age of women in perimenopause that kind of you've been supplementing with estradiol? I was just, just curious from your own personal perspective. Is it 43? Is it 44? I mean, obviously it varies. And most women at 43, 44 are like, I'm not even in, a lot of women don't even think that they're in perimenopause at this age. And I'm like, oh no, you're in perimenopause. So I was just curious, Dr. Gersh, what is what has been your experience? Well, in my experience, it's more in the, the mid forties and even a little bit later forties. That's only because they're the ones that are coming to you at the symptoms. Yeah. But like those symptoms have been intense for a minute and they're finally coming to you. Because people don't know. 
many of them are going to doctors and they're being told either this is just what it is. Oh, absolutely. This is it's totally normal. This is just what it is. Your labs are normal. Yeah, your lab or some of them, like a quarter of them are getting put on antidepressants because if you don't know what you don't know, then why would you take any action? So that, you know, it's really, that's why I'm so happy you get to talk about this, that it does matter. Perimenopause is a real thing and real problems are happening and they're being treated or not treated in ways that are not optimal for the individual woman. So we got to change this whole reframe the whole thing of menopause as a process of ovarian aging, not like you cross a finish line and more a little bit along the lines of where the the trend has been with insulin resistance. Like the whole trend of insulin resistance is don't wait till you're full-blown diabetic. We want to get aggressive with insulin resistance long before you're a full-blown diabetic, which of Well, especially for women. I mean, once we're full-blown diabetics, we are risk factors for dementia and cardiovascular disease just skyrockets. Like we needed to flag women before prediabetes, particularly. And it's, oh, that's where my outrage begins. (laughs) Even a little bit more trend, a little bit of even among rheumatologists, but just, just the beginning of looking at autoimmunity before you have the end stage autoimmune disease, like looking at antibodies like Hashimoto's antibodies, a positive ANA, looking for signs of an autoimmune process before you have end-stage disease. We certainly do that with cardiovascular health. We we look at high blood pressure long before someone has their stroke. And so why are we not thinking about being proactive with hormonal decline in the perimenopausal woman and looking at the trajectory of ovarian aging. We're doing that a little bit more and more in these other areas of health. And it now needs to become standard of care that perimenopause is the continuum on the the trajectory to menopause, which has huge metabolic shift events in women. And metabolic health is the creation, utilization, distribution, storage of energy. And every organ in the body needs to have energy. That's the difference between something living and something dead is the ability to create energy. And metabolic health is essential to optimal functioning and quality of life. It's our life force. This is the drum I'm beating is it is perimenopause, not menopause where we have to be optimizing our hormones and our metabolism. We cannot wait until we're 50. We cannot wait until 52 to have this on on our radar. And everyone, like no one's no one's flagging this late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s. And and I'm like, by the time we're in our 50s, like the the lipidemia, the fat distribution, the belly fat, all of the insulin resistance, it is, it is there. It's alive and well where we could have gotten a handle on it, in, you know, eight, 10 years ago, you know, with the shifts and changes of our hormones, because you said it's this, it's this natural decline. It's been happening. We're now we're at ground zero. It was during the transition that we needed to care. You know, obviously at any time it matters, but. Like hitting the full blown definition of menopause is like waiting to do anything and not taking any action until someone has 
their like really serious heart attack. Yeah. It, once you have the disease. It's late in the game. That's like such a key message. By the time your periods have been gone for a year, you're already late in the game of ovarian aging and a lot of damage and changes have already occurred in the body. And truly, we can always do better wherever we are on the timeline, but we can't undo the pain. Yes, we can't undo what has happened. We can't do like, let's do a redo. No, we do not. We have to then do the best we can from that point forward, but we can't rebuild all the things that are broken down. And we need to get proactive. So that's why I appreciate so much that we could get together to deliver this message that is so critical. There are so many women that are at this point and they don't know why they feel different emotionally. They're looking different. Their GI function is different. Their sleep is, they see changes and no one is helping them. No one is even acknowledging what is happening in their bodies. And so it's so important I always say over and over, the first step in solving a problem is to identify and define the problem. And that's what we're doing. And then the next step is solving it. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been such a profound conversation. I feel like you have validated so much of what women are going through. I believe that there's 50 million women in perimenopause in the States alone right now who, and I feel like Women didn't even know perimenopause was a process a decade ago and still don't know right now, but it wasn't even on our radar. I just, just women just suffering and no one having anything for them. Like, you know, that maybe they were crazy, you know, we're like, well, you're not in menopause yet. So don't worry about it. And so I just really appreciate this, this really powerful conversation. And, you know, I'm walking away with so much and, and, and I know I'm, I'm seeing the signs And there are areas that I have filled in the gaps, but there are still gaps that I'm trying to fill in at 44. You know, I am in the tunnel. (laughs) And and I just really appreciate this conversation today because I know that what I'm going to do in terms of pivoting in my own care literally in the next month or so is going to profoundly impact my health span moving forward. So thank you. Well, you are so welcome. And everyone out there, Take survey, a survey of yourself, your health, your habits, and then take action because this really matters and there really are so many things we can do to live healthier. Oh, and Dr. Gers, where can we where would you like us to find you? What what would you want to point us to? Well, I'm a practicing doctor. I have a regular office in Irvine, California, that's Southern California, called the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine, where I see patients every day. I also have an Instagram, which I try to stay reasonably active on. That's DR period, Felice Gersh. I have three books out and hopefully we'll have more. I have two on polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, SOS, and PCOS, SOS, fertility fast track to help women get pregnant really rapidly and successfully. And my most recent book is Menopause. 50 things you need to know. And it goes through the three stages of menopause. And of course, the first stage is perimenopause. So I have a whole big chapter on that one. Perfect. I will link to the books. I will link to Instagram. And um, and yes, I knew you were in Southern California. I'll have those details as well to your website so people can come and find you if indeed they are, they're looking for the, that level of standard of care that you so beautifully deliver. Thank you. My pleasure. Whoa. I don't know about you, but Dr. Gersh has given me so much food for thought 
especially around giving estradiol during perimenopause so that we don't experience that crazy estradiol roller coaster that drives so much of that estrogen dominance and can drive so many other crazy symptoms. My biggest takeaway from this conversation is that why not use every single resource we have to live our best life and to address some of our biggest symptoms due to declining hormones. These hormones matter. Dr. Felice Gersh made that very clear. I know that in my lived experience, that has become a very clear reality for me. And I know that Felice and I share a common mission, and that is to ensure that you have autonomy over your health for as long as possible and access to all the tools that will increase your health span and quality of life. I highly recommend checking out her book, Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know. I will have the link to the book in the show notes along with all the places to go and check her out. I also know that she has a PCOS SOS summit that's going down. I will have the link for the summit inside of the show notes in case polycystic ovarian syndrome is something that you're dealing with or something that you know a friend of yours is dealing with or maybe even a daughter. And I will also have a link to my latest book, The EO Menopause Solution, because these two books are great resources and are amazing companions together. And as always, thank you so much for coming on and listening to the Energized Podcast. I know that there is someone in your life that needs to hear this. I wish my mom heard this conversation 20 years ago. I wish we were having this conversation 20 years ago. And there are so many women I am going to tell about this episode myself. So please share it and then take a moment and rate the show. It only takes 30 seconds and it makes a massive difference. Until the next episode, have an amazing day. 